listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. History is written by the victors. German philosopher Walter Benjamin famously wrote, by which he meant that the way that events, victories, and conquests are recorded is very much colored by the teller of the story. If you win, your leader is a great hero. But if you're on the losing side, that same leader is a villain, a rebel, perhaps even a war criminal. Official court historians are fond of glossing over the foibles of their king and of enhancing, even mythologizing, their character and achievements. Yet the writer of the books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings can't be accused of that kind of royal glossing. This writer does have a serious soft spot for David. But from the beginning of First Samuel right through to the conclusion of Second Kings, this historian unflinchingly tells a plain, raw truth. Tonight's reading from First Kings is not actually one that's included in the lectionary cycle of appointed readings. But I opted to add it because it shows the unflinching biblical historian at work. This is the opening of the first book of Kings, and it begins with the statement that King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Now, David's first appearance in these historical narratives was way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, when as a boy he was described as being ruddy and handsome with beautiful eyes. Along the way, the historian has taken note of David's virility. He fathered 19 sons and one daughter by eight wives. And now here he is, aged and frail, unable even to get his old body to warm up. His attendants decide they've got a solution to that problem. You can almost imagine all of the winks and the knowing glances darting amongst them as they begin to put their little plan into action. Let a young virgin be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be his attendant. Let her lie in your bosom so that my lord the king may be warm. Nudge, nudge. So they searched for a beautiful girl throughout the territory of Israel and found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. And then the writer notes that she was beautiful indeed. She'll warm up the old man's bones. Yet, though Abishag does become David's attendant, and quite probably does even lie with him in his bed, to warm his aged body, the text is explicit. David did not know her sexually. It's a kind of a poignancy to this picture as we catch a glimpse of the strong, handsome, striking figure of David 
now grown so frail that what he most needs is someone to care for him and keep him warm. Meanwhile, in anticipation of David's death, there is some serious politicking and maneuvering going on in the royal household. All of the Senate scandals and all of the electioneering and backroom deals and posturing that can make many of us a bit cynical about the impending federal election, all of that stuff has nothing on this. Now, Adonijah, son of Haggoth, exalted himself, saying, I will be the king. His father, David, frail but still very much alive. And here is the fourth eldest son actively positioning himself to inherit the throne. He prepared for himself chariots and horsemen, the text continues, and 50 men to run before him. Now that's a warning sign if there ever was one, for it's pretty much exactly what Absalom had done when he began to mount his ill-fated rebellion. Chariots, horses, 50 men running ahead as a kind of a military escort with flair. Adonijah not only wants the throne, he's turned a kind of a corner. He's actually already claiming it. He'd done his politicking and he'd secured the support of the crucial military officer Joab, as well as of the priest Abiathar, two very important allies representing both temple but also military. And yet others, including the priest Zadok, the prophet Nathan, and David's own loyal soldiers were clearly not prepared to throw their support behind Adonijah. And so the tension bubbles. It actually opens the way for one of the most fascinating little bits of intrigue in the whole of the biblical narrative. The prophet Nathan. Remember, he's the one who had exposed David's adultery with Bathsheba and subsequent arranging of the murder of Uriah. That same prophet comes to Bathsheba herself to hatch a plot. Go in at once to King David, Nathan says to Bathsheba, and say to him, Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, Your son Solomon shall succeed me as king, and he, Solomon, shall sit on the throne? Why then is Adonijah king? Here's the thing. Although in 1 Chronicles, which is a kind of a parallel set of history books, 1 Chronicles does make some reference to Solomon having a kind of a prior claim to the throne. In the version told in the books of Samuel and Kings, there is no sign whatsoever that David ever made such a promise. In this telling, this is all a piece of subterfuge, playing on the king's failing memory, his wife, and one of the prophets who's been one of his most trusted advisors, but also the one who confronted him, and they're playing a game. While you are still there speaking with the king, Nathan adds, I will come in after you and I'll confirm your words. I'll support the con. 
And so they do. And David believes it. The king swore, saying, As I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, your son Solomon shall succeed me as king, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, so will I do this day. David has completely bought the con cooked up by Bathsheba and Nathan, which, when you think about it, is really a kind of an unexpected alliance, right? I mean, this is the woman who Nathan had kind of busted David for his affair with. And yet here they are working together. Bathsheba bowed her face to the ground and did obeisance to the king. What do you suppose the look on Bathsheba's face was as she bowed her head to the ground? Satisfaction? Solomon is going to the throne. Relief? We're safe. Shame? We lied. May my Lord King David live forever, she adds, all the while knowing that death is not far off for him and that it now would be her son Solomon who would succeed David to the throne. The transparency with which this biblical historian insists on telling these stories is so striking. He doesn't hide anything. No one, not even the greatest king of Israel, is prettied up or glossed over. If Walter Benjamin is right in saying that history is written by the victors, then who is the victor here? In a figurative way, perhaps it's the long-dead prophet Samuel who figured so prominently at the beginning of the whole David narratives. Early on, it was Samuel who had warned Israel against its desire for a king, a king to make them like the other nations. It was back in early June when this series began, and we had that text before us, in which Samuel had cautioned that kings are not all that they're cracked up to be. Kings conscript your sons into their army, They tax your fields and your herds. They use your daughters for the most menial of tasks, something Abishag herself might well be able to confirm. And essentially, kings reduce your lives to something close to slavery. Careful when you ask for a king, Samuel had said, because you're likely to get what you ask for. And you know, for all that David is a crowning figure in these stories and continues to figure mightily as a symbol of hopefulness right through into the New Testament where Jesus is what? Son of David. For all that, so often Samuel's words of caution, be careful when you ask for a king, those words indict him too. Ultimately, though, I believe that the victor who tells the history, who informs the telling of all of these stories, is not Samuel nor the writer, but instead God. God is the victor whose thumbprint is all over these stories. As the theologian Peter Lighthart puts it, the narrative is utterly realist in its unblinking depiction of conflict, interest, 
manipulation, and sexuality in political life, unblinking, unflinching. Yet, at the same time, the author insists that the Lord fulfills his purposes for Israel and the nations through these very strategies of real politic. God is not thwarted by the intrigue, by the backroom deals, and by the oftentimes profound failings of these kings. No, God is not thwarted. Strangely, in fact, salvation history has moved forward, not in spite of all of this messiness, but actually right through it. Such is the way that God works in these books. Such is the way that God works consistently through the biblical narratives. Such is the way God continues to work now. Good news for anyone who is honest about his or her own messiness and failings. They don't thwart God. That's not going to get pushed aside. In fact, it may be used as a vehicle of grace. Again, from Peter Leithart. Ultimately, this political narrative of crisis, transition, from one regime to another, from the regime of David to the regime of Solomon, ultimately, this transition story foreshadows a greater transition from old to new. It foreshadows the coronation of David's still greater son, a king sent to fulfill the Lord's oath to Israel, a king anointed not with oil, but with the abundance of the Spirit, a king who rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, to take his cruciform throne. Jesus' kingdom emerges like Solomon's from the midst of a political conflict and self-interest in a world of sin. Yet, in the end, for all of the politicking of the Roman Empire, all of the stuff that landed him on the cross, in the end, his is the only kingship that truly matters. And oddly enough, all of these stories of David and those around him are part of the story of the son of David too and part of our story as well. We have one more week in this series. Next week, when we watch David finally go to sleep with his ancestors in the beginning of the rise of Solomon, Yet even in his rise, there is caution. Maybe it should wake us up to the reality of politics and personalities and powers. That's not a bad thing to be awoken to. But more than anything, it should awaken us to the way in which God is thwarted by not any of it and uses all of it and all of us. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.